0: Um, I hope you have. I, I know my have been enjoying preparing for um, this series on can we can we trust the Bible. I, I hope that it has been um, a help to you and, and a challenge to you. I know we're we're only getting ready for our our second uh, part of the series, but it it really is a topic that number one is is very important in our in our culture today because. Scripture, the authority of Scripture has been greatly attacked. And, and we know that that isn't new. That's not a new problem. That's been around since really the Scriptures were, were written, and there's always been question about inspiration, questions about, about those things. Um, is it opening? I don't have it there now. Um, there has always been questions about inspiration, and, and so it is an important. Uh, topic for us to consider um, but but secondly, it is a huge topic um, it, it is not something that oh praise the lord, it is not something that <laughs> we 're good <sighs> no it 's not something that that we can cover in in depth. I, I asked Michelle um, a semi rhetorical question as we were getting ready to head in tonight, and I said. Well, the slideshow reached fifty-nine slides. Think we can get through all fifty-nine tonight? Yeah, she did the same thing. She laughed. She's like, "No, that's never going to happen." Um, but rather than rushing through it, I, I do want this to be a help to you. So let's let's jump into part two here. Can can we trust the Bible and is it is it authoritative for our lives? We we've been looking at a couple of verses. Um, just uh, we studied last week together, and uh, Psalm nineteen seven: the the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, okay, talking about the perfection of, of God's word. Uh, the second verse that we, that we studied at, really in more detail was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we studied really that word inspiration, what does it mean? It means God breathed, literally, um, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Okay, so talking about the purpose of Scripture, we studied that one last week. But I want you to look at a couple of Old Testament um, references, as you, if you will, as we try to... Actually, there's one more from Second Peter, um, that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so they spoke, they wrote according to what God had done in their hearts and in their lives. And uh, they wrote what God intended for them to write. That is the wrong presentation. I was wondering why that slide came up. It should be version number two. It should be, it should be, it's called, uh, it should be under tonight's service, and it's called um, session two, version two, because there was a version one that we did in high school chapel. Should be under the same same date. I'm hoping I don't have it open on my computer. I'm hoping that's not the problem. If it's open there, they can't open it up there. Boyd's going to come sing another song in a second. <laughs> Harold, you know any good jokes? Yeah, it's a funny one. I bet the people at home are enjoying this. Hi, everybody. There we go. Let's try this one. Can you skip through a couple? My clicker is delayed on the click, too. If you could click through a couple for me, that would probably help. Yep, did that one. One more. Oh, I did leave it in. Okay. This should be... There we go. No, that's not right either. That was the first one. It is working. What's that? There should be, under tonight's date. Are you under tonight's date? It should be session two, version two. That's from chapel. What you found was from chapel. Oh, I didn't know that. I can put them back in the Knowles file if I need to. I notice that there's none for next week. Is that why? Are we not doing it that way anymore? Huh? The Greek word for pastor means last to know. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? So him up, yeah. Take three. <laughs> Let's see if this is the right one. Third time's a charm. That looks good. That looks good. I'm, I don't think the first Peter one, if first Peter comes up, we might be in trouble. Whew. See, I'm not old and as, as forgetful as I thought. I did take it out. Thanks, guys. Yay, appreciate it. Um, Exodus 34. So considering some of the Old Testament descriptions of this process of revelation, um, Exodus uh, 34, 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, according to the tenor of these words i have made a covenant with you and with israel okay the clear commandment to write this down okay record this this is this is inspired this is important deuteronomy 31 uh, 24 so it was when moses had completed writing the words of the law in a book when they were finished okay again there's, there's, and I could go through hundreds, of, not hundreds. Well, probably is hundreds of these references. I won't, but just to show you how this was recorded and written, Jeremiah thirty-six two. Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of, um, I can't read that word Josiah, even to this day. And then the next one. Uh, Daniel nine two I, Daniel, understood by the books, of the, by the, books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So notice, even in the Old Testament writers where Daniel here is referencing Jeremiah, and he says, the reason I knew that we would be here 70 years is God's prophet under inspiration wrote it. There was a a record of this uh, event. God had predicted it. Jeremiah had recorded it. He had written it down. And so Daniel knew, understood what was taking place because of what Jeremiah had written. Isaiah 30 verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet. Not like a tablet you, like, not like today's tablets, right? On scrolls. And make it on a scroll that it may, in time to come, forever and ever, that there was a, a permanency to what they were writing. So, so we see these command. And again, there's there's lots more. Okay, we could go through 59 slides of that, um, but we understand that throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament as they were writing the Old Testament, as it was being recorded, remember, they weren't thinking Old Testament New Testament. They're just receiving revelation. As they wrote it down, there was an understanding among the prophets and among those in that time period that this was inspired. This was Scripture. This was directly from God. So one of the arguments when we get to the New Testament and understanding that the New Testament writers, the New Testament Um, as they recorded the New Testament and Jesus himself, when they went back and they started looking at the Old Testament, they quoted the Old Testament. They they referred to the Old Testament. Why? Because they knew it was inspired. Okay, so there was this understanding of inspiration. Now what I want to do tonight, we looked last week at um, some ideas of of copious errors and things like that. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. Of people who question the validity of the Bible. Okay, you can't trust the Bible because there's errors in it or mistakes in there. And we look through what a variance is and what that means. And when you're talking about a a variance, that they are that they are insignificant. There's only a few that have any bearing at all that are, that are you know, significant, that you have to wrestle through. They would fit on a half sheet of paper, okay? There are that few. Most of them are spelling mistakes. Word order changes, which again, in Greek, word order is irrelevant. Word order doesn't even matter. And so when you look at those things, we have to understand that even if there is a mistake in a word a letter gets copied wrong or what have you, that the context can help define what the word is. Scott Breyer had a, had a perfect illustration. I got real quick permission to use it. Perfect illustration of that in in, um, in Sunday school today. When, because we know that even in spite of spell check on your computer, you've sent things with the wrong word. Spelled right, but wrong word. But he was telling a story about a text he got from Jonathan while he was coming in for tech rehearsal. And Jonathan, his son... Text him and he says, you know, I may not get this exactly word for word what's how it happened, but church, uh, you know, on my way, on my way this morning, church, the church blew out. And Scott was like coming to tech rehearsal and was like, I don't know what to do with that. That's weird. Your church burned down on Sunday. So he wrote it back and he said something like, Well, God has a plan. <laughs> and, And so then Scott does this tech rehearsal and Scott is leaving and walking over and his son Jonathan texts him again and says, I'm sitting on side of the road, my clutch burned out. And so Scott says, there I was, the good dad saying, be warmed and be filled and just go whatever. And his poor son is sitting on side of the road. Now, if we have the full context, and there is a word, a letter that gets switched around, in the context of a car and a person broken down, sitting on the middle of the road, you would know the word church does not fit that context, unless it's really a weird situation. Okay? It doesn't fit the context. So while we looked at these variances, and, and again, people get nervous about that, and they overreact to it, we have to understand that they are, they are insignificant, and the context can help clarify even some of those mistakes. So let's look at some other supposed inaccuracies or problems with with the Scripture. And so let's look at some supposed problems of accuracy. We'll see how many we can get through these um, tonight. Um, The first one is poor interpretation method by the reader, sometimes clouded by the reader's presuppositions. Okay, a presupposition is we all come to the Scripture With life experience, we come to Scripture with a particular point of view. We come to Scripture being uh, uh, affected by how we grew up, by what we were taught. And as I said here, there is no such thing as a natural, neutral, excuse me, as a neutral reader. And you may say, oh, I don't have any presuppositions. Yes, you do. You're human. We all have presuppositions. I'll say one word for you to clarify. Worship. We have presuppositions on that topic? So we come back and we have to ask our question, are we carrying out exegesis, which means this. Exegesis is just a fancy word that means I come to the Scripture and I I study it and I allow the Scripture to say what it says. It it means I I take it and I look at it in in its original language, if I can, or in English, if I can't do that, and I understand it, and I let it speak and say what it says. I had a a cartoon that hung hung on my wall for a while, and it's this pastor. And he's he's sitting there reading his Bible, and he's got coffee infusion over his head, like going into his veins, and and the date behind him is Saturday, whatever, and it's 11:30 at night. Don't ever don't ever do that. And he's sitting there and he's sweating bullets and the caption says, "Oh no, I got to go change my whole message." The point was like I'm actually reading the text and it's, it doesn't say what I wanted it to say. And sometimes we practice not exegesis, but what's called eisegesis, which means I take my ideas and I read it into the scripture. As D.A. Carson said, I read what jolly well ought to be there. And it may not be there. As Bible Seminary Prof. said, you sucked it out of your thumb. It's not there. And so we have to understand that we all come with presuppositions, with pre-ideas, and we have been... We've been taught things. We have been uh, we have developed culturally. We've developed in, in church situations or family situations that we grew up in, and we have to understand that we are not a neutral reader. But here's what we can do: is we can honestly assess what lenses do I wear? Because when I come to Scripture and I want to make sure that when I say and I'll and add this in a slide later. When I say, it's always interesting when people says, well, the Bible says, and I'm always curious what they're going to say after the Bible says, because sometimes the Bible doesn't say that. Sometimes we jolly well wish it did say that, but it doesn't. Again, I've told this story before, but I remember as a teenager sitting desperately in my room trying to find the verse that I'd heard my whole life that the Bible says that if you own a television, you're going to hell. And I couldn't find it, and I still can't. Why? Because the Bible didn't say that. But man, I heard it preached, buddy. I I had a friend who said, you know, he heard his whole life that if you step foot in a movie theater that, you know, the gates of heaven were probably going to close for you. And he got married, and him and his wife on their honeymoon decided they were going to go see a movie, and he said, I went in there, I didn't know what was going to happen, pretty sure I was going to get struck by lightning, and walked in, he said, we sat down, we'd never been in one before, and we're looking around, and we're like, it's just a room. And he said, we watched the movie, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I wonder what else our parents lied to us about. We've got to be very careful. Does God have principles about what we watch? Of course. But when we say the Bible says, we better make sure the Bible said it. It's not the gospel according to you, it's the gospel according to, to God. So sometimes poor interpretive methods by the reader, we need a proper hermeneutic. That simply means this, that we need a way to study the Bible that is accurate. And these little pictures here that sometimes we come up with an application, something that we want to believe okay we want to apply and then we go to the scripture and what the Bible becomes in eisegesis is it becomes a, a collection of proof texts and, and then I can go to the Bible and, and try to find a verse that may sort of kind of mean what I want it to mean But in its context, that's not what it says. That's eisegesis, not exegesis. Not allowing the verse, the passage to say what it says. And then I start with the text and my application comes out of that. You have to have application, of course. But application and commandment are not the same thing. And I have to make sure that my applications flow out of what the text actually says. That was a a book. I couldn't find it maybe out of print or something like that or maybe it was an article i read but it was called the heresy of application and it was a preaching material and it was about make sure that when you make an application that you make an application that number 1 it's clearly an application not a commandment but number 2 that the application is actually applicable from that passage so we have to start with the text so sometimes these supposed problems of accuracy are our problem. They're, they're our fault. We are not practicing good biblical interpretation, good biblical hermeneutics. Um, biblical, uh, poor interpretive method in the reader too, when we say the Bible says, we better be sure the Bible actually says it. Okay? And then familiar phrase we've been saying here for, quote, for a number of years, we need to be as broad as the scriptures are broad and as narrow as the scriptures are narrow. I mean, how much stealing is okay? A little bit? All of it? Some of it? How much stealing is wrong? Hello? All of it, okay. That, as narrow as the scriptures are narrow, that is not negotiable. How much lying is okay? Right? Right? We, we need to be as narrow as the scriptures are narrow, but there are places that the scriptures are broader than, probably if we're honest, we all would like at times. But we have to be honest with the text, okay? It's the text. When I say the Bible said, I need to be sure that the Bible said it. Here's an illustration of that. After the service today, I'm standing in the back, and a guy comes up to me and he says, um, Pastor, you know, on the... Um, the image where you know the pigs run down into the into the water and all the people are mad, and they run Jesus out of town. He said, "Might it be that they were angry at Jesus because the pigs were part of their economy?" Now scholars say that, and the, the, but and I, my response to that is, I don't know. The owner of the pigs is never mentioned. Luke doesn't tell us they ran him out of town because of the economic havoc that Jesus caused by the pigs running into the ravine or into the sea. And it doesn't tell us how many swine there were. If legion was able to fit into one person, how many pigs did this legion of demons have to fit in? I don't know. So if I said the Bible said that the pigs went into the water and the people were mad because it ruined their economy, it does not say that. Is that possible? It's possible. Am I going to take a bullet for that? No way. So we have to be clear in understanding what the Scripture actually says. Now here's the next one. Lack of understanding of the customs, geography, and historical setting of the audience and world of the original text. So sometimes these problems of accuracy are our own problem. Okay? It's our presupposition. It's our lens that we're seeing the world through. Sometimes it's because we don't understand their world. The Bible was written in an agricultural, eastern, rural, and group-oriented culture. Our culture is technological, urban, western, and individual-oriented. Now, and I didn't add this on there, but the other thing we have to be careful to do is that when we go back to the scripture and we try to understand, take, take Mary and Joseph as an illustration, their idea of betrothal. And what did that mean? That, is a, that was a cultural norm of that time. That was something that they did. We have to also make sure that the other cultural issue that we don't do, we don't we have to understand their culture and their world, but we also have to not read American culture into the Scripture. I mean, I, I've been on the mission field on short-term trips enough to know that you say certain things in foreign fields that are a big deal here, here and people on the foreign, you know, in a foreign place look at you like, what are you talking about? What? I, I don't even... I remember I had a, I had a friend... Um, in, me- in Mexico City, he asked me to come preach their 20th anniversary sermon uh, service for them. So we take a group of kids down to Mexico, and I'm preaching what I thought was a great encouragement for them. And and I preached it like a good American would. And, and after, I'm, I'm walking, you know, I'm out there with his name is Renee, and I'm talking to Renee. And, and I said, well, you know, was the, was the message kind of, you know, what you were thinking? He said, yeah, it was good. And I know Renee and I are pretty good friends. I said, okay, Renee, shoot straight with me. He goes, that's not a problem here. He said, most of the people sat today and listened to you. because you preached American culture to them. And they're like, what are you talking about? So we have to be very careful. It was still true. It was about family values and that sort of thing. Um, but lack of understanding of their culture and reading our culture into it. Now, another one is poor English translation. I know this may make some of you nervous, okay, but we have to be honest with the text, okay? Proverbs 18.24 is one of those verses when people quoted, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, okay? King James, New King James, the only translations that I'm aware of um, in English that translate it that way, and I've talked to missionaries who minister in other languages, and this verse is not translated that way. It is, how is it in Dutch? It doesn't say that, no, because it's, it's, it's not the best, Proverbs 18.24, ESV, NIV, NASB, a man of many companions may come to ruin. Proverbs 18.24, according to Holman, a man with many friends may be harmed. Now, if you go back, 18.24, the second part is, but there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The, the The proverb is a pithy saying that's making one statement and comparing it to another. He that has many friends, shows that doesn't even fit the context. And it's a poor translation of what the Hebrew was Communicating. The translation was that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is one that sticks closer to a brother. That's the picture. And so we have to understand. And by the way, the point in this is not ever, 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 ever to get us to question our English Bibles. We're not doing that. But we have to go back in, and I'm not saying you got to learn Greek and Hebrew. Heavens, no. I'm not saying that. But to be able to understand. What did this mean in that language? What is the interpretation, what is the translation in this that is actually with the Hebrew or Greek or small sections of Aramaic? What were they trying to communicate? Understanding that when this was first translated, 1611 or whatever, that this was, hey, they were using the tools the best they could. Now, as we understand language a little bit better, a little bit more effectively, we understand that the that the, that the translation much much better fits um, in, the newer, in the newer translation. Here's the other one. We've, we've talked about this one already, but an incorrect reading in the text, a mistake in copying. We spent a lot of time on this one last week. But here's just an example: 1 Kings 4:26, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 2 Chronicles nine twenty-five. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls. Whoa, 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 whoa. They're different. What happened? Hebrew language doesn't do a lot of things well. Numbers is one of them. What happened? What happened? A copyist did what? Yeah, there's either a zero added or a zero taken out. Now, I read an article online about how this these two pretty much these two verses prove we can discount the entire bible okay that 's insane all right we, but we have to be honest we have to look at this and ask the question: why are these two things different well, if you 've ever written a number and forgotten a zero, whatever, and that crept into it crept into the the transcripts over time okay so we 've got to be fair we've got to be honest about that but it doesn't change the meaning of scripture and it certainly doesn't change the we will talk about the the inspiration of this in a minute here's the other thing and get into different translations why did this translation use this word or that word multiple meanings of words the semantic range of a word example match what does match mean in english you can talk what does match mean huh okay something you like firewood with right A pair. Compare. I mean a pair too, right? They match. Compare. It's a sports thing. I was really disappointed today. Federer got rained out. Their match got rained out. Their match, the little thing that lights fire, got rained out? Is that what he said? No. Their, Their game got matched, right? So to translate the word match into another language, I have to first of all define what word are they... Which which meaning does this word have? What is the semantic range of that word? And if I was talking about match in a sports sense, if one translation said match, one said game, and one said competition, which one's right? They're all correct. They all interpreted, translated the word within the semantic range of that word. You can't go, and we'll talk about this probably next week, word for word from one translation to a next, from one language to another. It doesn't work. You can't do that. Now, I just put bank up there as another illustration. The English word bank. What does that mean? Well, depends on, depends on the context. I went to the bank to get money. I stood on the bank and went fishing. I went around the turn, and it had a big bank in it, right? Same word with very different meaning. So when we talk about these supposed problems of accuracy, Hebrew, Greek words, they also had a semantic range of meaning. And so here's, here's an illustration. You're driving down the road, and you come to an intersection. And there is a sign at this intersection that is red. What does that road sign mean? Stop. No, it doesn't. It means... Bring your vehicle to the place that all forward progress is no longer happening. Check the intersection both ways. Make sure that there are no cars coming. Proceed through the intersection with care, making sure the intersection is free from oncoming traffic. That's what it means. What if I took a different English word and I put the word quit on the, on the sign rather than stop? Did I change the meaning? Did I change the meaning of the sign? Did I? I did? No. Stop, quit, cease, maybe is a better word. Whatever the word is, I'm assigning it to communicate something that it means. So we want to understand what does the text mean? What does that word mean? Okay, And I can assign a different word to it. To make sure that that it's communicated, alleged contradictions, misunderstanding of chronology in the in the gospels, similar to the different or similar but different events. We studied the sinful woman in Luke seven, but the woman in Matthew twenty six, Mark fourteen, and John twelve are different people. So sometimes we have this you know similar but different event, and people say, "Oh, they're, they're contradictory. They're two different things." They're two different events. There were things that happened at two different times. Jesus would use, and I, and I do this, I, you know, I preach here on a regular basis. I try to never um, use the same illustrations, because you've heard them. That's impossible. I don't come up with that many great, wonderful new ones, and I don't, I don't like canned ones, so I don't do that. But when I preach other places and other settings, you'll use the same illustration with a different application at times. Jesus did the same thing. So we can't look at it and say they contradict. They could very well be two separate occasions in which Jesus used the um, the same illustration. Let's do a little illustration. Okay, let's do this for a few minutes, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this first section up tonight. I think as far as I want, so hopefully I didn't create more questions in your mind tonight than I intended, because I intended to answer them for you. We're not going to have time. Um, high schoolers can't help the adults, okay? You can't help, because this is the same illustration we used in chapel, but I did correct my typo, so that's good. Okay, this is an account of four, four different eyewitnesses. I was out walking this morning, and a police car pulls up beside me and stops. And sheriff's deputy and guy rolls down his window. I know Ed. Whatever it is, I didn't do it. No, I didn't say that. He says, hey, we're looking for a guy. haven't seen him. Have you seen him? I haven't seen anybody, just me and my dog. So drive down the road, walk down the road. A few minutes later, another cop car comes up beside me. It's a, gate, it's a lady this time. She puts down her window. She goes, have you seen, It's like I've heard this story before. No, I haven't seen them. Okay, what were they looking for? What? Eyewitnesses, right? So the Gospels, the four eyewitnesses of what Jesus did and said, there was four eyewitnesses. And so people come and they say the Gospel writers contradict each other. There are times in which one writer says this and another writer says that. They are contradictory. Okay, let me give you an illustration of that. This is a real event. It's a real event that happened, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. A woman was rushed to the hospital after being attacked by a man. The man was trying to steal her purse when he threw her to the ground. Two men witnessed the attack, pursued the suspect who fled into the mall. The police quickly joined in the pursuit and the sus- of the suspect, but they were unable to apprehend him. Okay, that's the first person's account of this event. Let's look at the second person's account. A woman who was nine months pregnant was attacked outside of Toys R Us in broad daylight. The woman's 18-month-old son was with her and witnessed the attack. The little boy watched as the assailant tried to rob his mother and threw her violently to the ground. The mother sustained only minor injuries. A man who pursued the suspect was also injured as he ran after the attacker. His knee was injured. Police chased the man, but they were unable to apprehend him. These two witnesses throw him out. They contradict. They don't agree. What do they disagree on? What's in this account that wasn't in the other one? Huh? Okay, she's pregnant. Toys are Us, a place. What else is different? There's this little boy. Where'd he come from? What else is contradictory? How many people chased the assailant? One or two. They're not the same. I'm, I'm being sarcastic if you're missing that. Okay, account number three. A woman who was nine months pregnant was attacked today by a single assailant. Pursuit of the attacker followed the robbery attempt. The man fled into a housing development behind the mall. Whoa, 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 whoa. First guy said the and went where? Into the mall. This guy says he went where? Housing development. Throw this guy out too. Where police chased him for over an hour. The pursuit was called off after an officer was stung over a hundred times when a swarm of aggressive bees was stirred up during the chase. The officer was taken to the hospital where he was treated and released. Now this person's having delusions. Now we got bees. Now now we've got now we've got other stuff going on. What in the world? Okay, account four. A male suspect was pursued today after trying to rob an adult female outside of a local store. The woman who was pregnant was taken to the hospital for evaluation. She was later released. Another man was taken to the hospital when he injured his knee trying to capture the assailant. A police officer was also taken to the hospital for evaluation evaluation after being attacked by bees during the search. While the man was not apprehended at the scene, police have good information on the attacker. Now, this one's different, too. In what sense? How's this one different? Huh? It's a, it's a good summary, and it centers on who went to the hospital. Right? Now, let me tell you this story from my perspective. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Nova Scotia, Canada, when my phone rings, and it's my wife. And Michelle says to me, "You will never believe what just happened." And I like any good man would, I said, "You wrecked the car." <laughs> She's like, "No! Some guy just tried to rob me. He tried to mug me. Jonathan and I were walking outside of Toys R Us and this guy came around the corner and he made me nervous and so I grabbed his hand. She's 9 months pregnant. And he tries to get my purse. Michelle always reminds me every time I tell this story. He did not get the purse. Okay, if you know my wife, you know well enough she's not going down without a fight. Okay, don't mess with her. I wouldn't. Okay, so throws her to the ground. Jonathan's there, screaming, yelling. This guy, these guys try to catch the guy. The guy who was a missionary actually blows his knee out. He's laying in the middle of the of the parking lot, the guy who tried to mug her goes into the mall, out the back door of the mall, into the housing development behind the mall, takes off his shirt, which was key in catching him, because they caught him identifying his tattoos all over his body. He goes through pretending to be a a landscaper, and in the pursuit of this, the police kick up this swarm of Florida-bred killer bees, and these people get stung. A dog got stung, and there's chaos, and they had to call off the search. So everywhere we go in Orlando, for that period of time, we'd walk in, and they go, You're that lady! I saw it! The TV was at our house, and Michelle got interviewed, Jalen was born, and the TV reporter's like, we got to come see the kid! And so they come over, and Jalen's like this, and they're, they're videotaping her, and, and like, Michelle was this big hero. And then um, then the, when they caught him, they did this series on, on categorizing, um, ca- cate- uh, putting guys into um, categories based on their tattoos. And so they were doing this series on that. And so they came over and interviewed us again. The guy who did it tried to call us from jail. I mean, it was a saga, man. So who was right in the four accounts? They're all right. They don't contradict. They what? They complement each other. So when people say, you can't trust the gospel writers because the gospels contradict each other. No, they don't. Here's, here's, Here's what happens. If I start with the premise, with the lens, with the presupposition that the Bible's not true... Then every little seemingly contradiction, I'm going to point at and say, oh, see? See? Yeah, but you're trying to find something that's not there. Let me give you a real quick illustration. This is a very short one. Think about the inscription on the cross. It was. By the way, go compare the resurrection stories. sometimes. Compare them. There's some very real differences. By the way, if, you, if you're interested in this, you can get a harmony of the Gospels, um, very, very helpful. It puts the four Gospels right next to each other, and you can compare them. Very, very helpful tool. Um, it was Roman custom to post the cross on the cross the crime of the one being executed. The sign also identified the victim, since a person being crucified was not easily recognizable. In other words, they'd been beaten, they'd been skirted, you couldn't tell who they were. So if you take the four Gospels and you put them side by side, Matthew 27, 37, and set up over his head his accusation... Written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What about Mark? And the superscription of the accusation was written over the King of the Jews. Are they the same? No. What about Luke? And the superscription also written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew this is the King of the Jews. What about John and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They're all four different, aren't they? Contradiction. Okay, really? Let's understand this. First of all, the only common element in all four citations is king of the Jews. That's in all four. Why? You you tell me. Why? This was the what? What? Well, no. Why did this have to be on there? This is his crime! His crime was he claimed to be king of the Jews. Remember they said the accusation against him was that he was the king. This was heresy against God. This was insurrection against, against the emperor. They, this is intolerable. His accusation had to be listed. So the writers of the Gospels understood that for them, they had to include what was it that he was accused of. He was accused of claiming to be king. They all four have it. Now, what about some of the other information that's not included? Well, what about his name? Well, we have a couple of explanations. First of all, John 19, 20. This title then read, many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. So why might they be different? Which language did you translate it from? There's three of them. And we already said that you can't take one language and word for word make it exactly into its, into its translation language. You can't take the source language and make it perfect. You can't do that. So there's three different languages there. But here's the other thing. The only essential part to include was the accusation. It's obvious that it's Jesus being crucified. So the only reason to include his name was for effect. Think about this. The writers also of the Gospels were limited by space due to the size of the scrolls available to them. Luke and Acts, they're one. They were written on two different... Why, why did Luke stop and start again? Because he ran out of room. So when we look at these supposed contradictions, there are solutions for them that are not made up. They're not fictitious. They're not our own defensiveness trying to defend what this says. It is because there are legitimate reasons why there are times that they may be different, just as in the account of the eyewitnesses. They may give different accounts of the same event, but they are complementary, not contradictory. Paul and James' contradiction, right? Salvation, is it by faith or is it by works? By grace are you saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God. And then James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if, though a man say he hath faith and not works? Can faith save him? So are they contradictory? Are they talking about two different ways of salvation? Does Paul present one and James another? Paul is addressing the issue of justification and how one becomes a Christian. James is talking about the evidences of our salvation. It's evidenced by our good works. If you claim to have faith in Christ, but you don't work and don't demonstrate that salvation, your claim of faith is in vain. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you're saved by by your works Matthew seven twenty, by their fruits you shall know them. Jesus said in Luke eight eight fifteen, but on the good ground are they which are honest and good heart have heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. James and, and Paul are complimenting one another. Your salvation is by faith in Christ. Your justification, your redemption is by faith. It is not of works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. Then James says, if you say with your mouth that you have faith, but there is no evidence of your faith, there is no evidence of your salvation, your faith, your claim to faith is in vain. And Jesus said the same thing. There are people that say with their mouth that they follow me, but with their actions, they are not obedient. They are talking about two sides of the same coin. So when people talk about the supposed inaccuracies of Scripture, we have to be honest and say that while there are passages, we have to study and understand. But I have to start with, is it my presupposition is it my preconceived idea about this passage? Am I practicing eisegesis, or am I going in to assess what does it actually say? Number two, do I understand the cultural ba- backgrounds of this passage? Do I understand the history behind it? Am I missing something in the interpretive process that I, that I am not understanding? Am I reading American culture into this? Am I reading my, you know, my modern day ideas into that? Number three, am I misunderstanding the semantics of a word? Am I, am I misunderstanding that? Is it, a, is it the best translation? Is this the best way that this could have been translated? Is this supposedly a contradiction or are these complementary? Do they fit together? There are answers for these questions. So when we question the supposed inaccuracies of Scripture and and the supposed problems in, in translation and the supposed problems in all these things, folks, as I said last week, there is overwhelming evidence. Overwhelming evidence of the legitimacy, the validity, the accuracy of our translations, of our Scriptures, that we can say with great confidence this is what God said. Don't fall for the nonsense. Let me give you one quick illustration, and it I'll really will be the last one. Have you ever heard of, and I don't know the details about how they function, but every Christmas, Easter time, you know, they do these specials and, and search for Jesus. And have you ever heard the, of the group called the Jesus Seminar? Has anybody ever heard of them? Good. You have. Bill has. They are a liberal group of supposed theologians, who, and they have broken the Bible down. It's for what I understand is that, from remembering correctly, it's color coded of things that are that are true, things that are doubtful, things that are definitely not true. And they vote on what parts of the Bible are valid, what parts of the Bible are accurate. And it's a group of them, and they vote. And it's like something like, I don't know, very small percentage of the Bible that they believe is accurate. So they start with the presupposition that this and Shakespeare are the same. It's really not, it's not inspired, it's not true. But if you watch these programs, and you have Dr. Whoever from wherever, and then at the bottom it says Jesus Seminar. They start with the premise of disproving the Bible and don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe anything that the Bible says, but on our national television, they are held up and heralded as the scholars. They start with the with the with the premise of disproving the Bible. They ignore the evidence. They ignore they ignore the manuscript evidence they ignore all of those things because they desperately want to believe the bible's not true they're presupposed oh but they don't have yes they have presuppositions so we have to understand that the scripture is given to us it is the word of god we can have great confidence in its accuracy And we can go historically understand these differences, these things that we have, contradictions, whatever, that we can understand them. And in no way, in no way does it change the gospel message that God has given to us. So if anything, we talk through all of this and we'll understand it more next time. When we understand this more, I believe we come out the other side with great confidence that we have God's inspired word preserve for us in heaven forever and preserve for us in our scriptures that we can know, thus saith the Lord. This is what God said. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share uh, this discussion tonight. And I I know there's a lot of information here, a lot more to go. And God, our, our hope is to build confidence in what we know to be true about your word, what we know to be true about you, and Lord, I pray that you would guide us through this study as we try to understand how you worked in the hearts of men to record for us the scripture. And God, I pray that you would use this in our lives to help us grow confident in our, in our understanding of scripture and understanding of how the word of God came to us. So we ask you to bless now the rest of our evening and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.